Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies to make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. So today covering the news to know for the week of November 11th. And I've got about six, maybe seven stories. We'll see what we have time for here. And we'll go from there. To all my colleagues who have taken their informatics boards, I took mine a week or so ago. I am thrilled that it's done <laughs> behind me. I'm sure you are too. Congratulations. Um, yeah, and we have to wait till February to find out if we pass. All right. Uh, let's start with this article came out of Healthcare Finance. The title is Quality of Initial Training Makes a Big Difference in EHR Satisfaction. And this was a class survey. Now, class has been talking about this for a while, but I think they've published something new here. So, the analysis finds strong internal training as well as ongoing follow-up are the most important factors in providers' overall EHR experience. This holds true even for specialties that generally report lower satisfaction with their organization's EHR system. Within those low-scoring areas, there's significant variation that depends on training quality. The class, and for those of you who don't know class, that's KLAS, they will survey health systems providers and CIOs and all kinds of people around health IT to understand their preferences for the software and what they like, what they don't. So the class report, um, which is titled Achieving EHR Satisfaction in Any Specialty, is based on survey data collected from 30,000 physicians nationwide. It finds the highest EHR satisfaction among hospital medicine, pathology, and pediatric specialties, and the lowest overall satisfaction in the areas of orthopedics, cardiology, and plastic surgery. That rings true. I, I think that's about the way it goes in my system as well. I'm sure that, uh, as CMIOs, you, you have a, a good feel for who, who is easygoing and who gives you a hard time. Uh, there's a quote here from class. It says, there is no single perfect training program, but implementing certain practices, such as using knowledgeable instructors for onboarding or providing lots of online content for follow-up training, can help build an education platform that is useful to clinicians regardless of their specialty. So, like I said before, we've heard from class. We, we know what they say it just intuitively feels right from our day-to-day -day work. Training is important. In my experience, healthcare skimps with onboarding and continuing education. In other industries, you will see onboarding programs that last weeks. In healthcare, I've seen providers turn loose with less than three hours of onboarding. So why is this? Well, as you know, there's no immediate ROI for training. It does not generate revenue, so it's seen as being expendable. And it can be costly to do it right. It requires either dedicated resources or you got to pull existing experts off of their duties to, to train. There's also a cost to not doing it, and that's dissatisfaction with your main tool that is used every day. This will lead to higher turnover, poor patient experience, could lead to burnout, lower productivity, and I believe it has a cascading negative effect on the culture of the organization. If, let's just say, your providers hate the tool, the nurses hate the tool, they're having bad experiences. Those bad experiences will be shared. They're frustrated. They're not going to be as engaged. And that will eventually impact the patient experience and, and their care as well. So 
Why do I bring this article up? Because as CMIOs and physician informaticists, we have to advocate for the resources to do the training right. Now, it does take a leader, an executive team that has a long-term focus and that has the political capital to weather a short-term financial hit to performance as you're building the proper training program. And some health systems are very bottom line conscious and a drop in profitability over two to three quarters can be career ending. And in that environment, my two cents is you shouldn't try to push too hard on EMR education. It's just culturally not the right time or the right place to do it. And you need to build up more grassroots support and board level support, I think, to really be able to implement something in that kind of environment. So do the best you can with the resources you have and focus on the things that you can impact. But know that training is the right answer. All right. Next article. This one came out of Healthcare IT News. It's been fairly widely reported, though. And let's see. Here's the title. Few patients access EHR data despite widespread availability, says the reports here. This is by Nathan Eddy, November 8th, 2019. Here's some quotes. Policy efforts have failed to engage a large proportion of patients in the electronic use of their data or to bridge the, quote, digital divide that accompanies healthcare disparities. A nationwide study of more than 2,400 hospitals indicates patients are not accessing the information provided through electronic health records, despite efforts to improve patients' ability to access and use it. Why it matters here. Although 95% of hospitals provided outgoing patients with access to view, download, and transmit their EHRs, fewer than 1 in 10 actually took advantage of the possibility. Overall, this is the quote, overall our findings suggest that policy efforts have failed to engage a large proportion of patients in the electronic use of their data or to bridge the digital divide that accompanies healthcare disparities. So that feels about right to me. Patient engagement with our portals is not that high, and why is that? Well, they're not integrated. People do not like having to go to different portals for each place there they got care. The data is not presented in a way they like to ingest it. Medical jargon can be complex and health literacy can be low and that's not going to help adoption. And the functionality we provide is sometimes pretty limited. Not everyone across the country here has gone forward with online scheduling or the release of labs right away or other results or the release of provider notes. So we deliver a product that most people find inadequate and then we wonder why is adoption so low. It's not the patient that's broken here. It's the tools, it's us, particularly doctors. There is significant distress when providers perceive the loss of control over their schedules or loss of control over the delivery of results or the loss of control over the visibility of their notes. And as CMIOs, we get the wonderful difficult task of getting our colleagues to let go of their control issues. From my, from my experience, the loss of control is just a perception thing. They never really had control in the first place. Patients can go to the HIM department and request their records and get everything anyway. Uh, they uh, feel like they're in control if they make a little bit harder to do it with a higher barrier to entry, but it's silly and we're just trying, we're just making the patient's lives a little more complicated. We need to move past this hurdle. In our system, we just went to the automatic release of the discharge summary to the patient via the portal. I haven't heard a peep out of it. No one has complained. These are really non-events and we're going to continue to move forward on some of these other like open note type initiatives. So I hope you are too and hopefully you have better engagement rates than what they quoted 
in this article and that it has an impact that patients get better care or more engaged with their care because of it. All right, next article, somewhat related here. Uh, health records on iPhone now available to veterans across the U.S. And here's the story. So Apple and the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs today announced that veterans across the nation and surrounding territories now have access to their health records in the health app on the iPhone. The VA gradually launched health records, that's the name of the product, I guess, to select patients this summer and now veterans who are iOS users and receive their care through the VA can see a fuller, more comprehensive picture of their health that includes information from multiple providers. By signing into their provider's patient portals in the health app, veterans can see all their health records in one place, including medications, immunizations, lab results, and more. The health app continually updates these records, giving VA patients access to a single integrated snapshot of their health profile whenever they want, quickly and privately. So this seems like a very reasonable answer to me to some of the issues I mentioned in the last article. And so if the VA can do it, why can't the rest of us do it? Uh, do you really want your health system to be the one that is lagging behind the VA in terms of functionality? I suspect not. So we, we should be doing this. I've not seen the, the, the health app on the iPhone. But from my colleagues who have from what I hear, yeah, it's, it's heading in the right direction. You're bringing all that data together in the right place. And I'm sure as the functionality continues to advance here, the display, the presentation is going to be significantly improved compared to what you get out of a, uh, a MyChart or whatever Cerner has for their portal. Next, let's talk about... Uh, this was an interesting article. Uh, it it's actually it comes from a vendor, uh, Kyrus, K-Y-R-U-U-S. And I'll explain why I think it's interesting here in a second. Here's the title. New patient access survey shows consumers are increasingly self-empowered in their care decisions and place a growing premium on convenience. This was November 5th. So they did a survey, so their third survey of a thousand healthcare consumers focused on their decision-making process and preferences when it comes to determining where and from whom to obtain care. The findings, which is published in the 2019 Patient Access Journal report, show that consumers are becoming increasingly self-empowered when evaluating their care options and that they continue to rank convenience and speed of access highly in their decisions. This year's results also reveal a growing influence of organizational brand on consumer choices. Other notable findings, and they list four here. Independent research is still the top method for finding primary care providers and rising now in specialist searches. The highest share of consumers found PCPs themselves, that's 32%, and while provider referrals remained the predominant resource for specialists, that share declined from 45% to 40% alongside a comparable rise in self-research. Number two, insurance and clinical expertise remain consumers' top criteria. For the third straight year, the top provider selection criteria were insurance accepted. It's 91% saying it was extremely or very important. And then clinical expertise is 88%. Followed by communication skills, and then the hospital uh, or health system reputation and appointment availability. Next, preference for self-service scheduling is growing. While consumers still prefer to book appointments by phone, there is rising interest in online booking as one-third now prefer to schedule online, which is up uh, one quarter in 2017, a trend that's particularly pronounced among millennials and Gen Xers. 
And then the fourth point here, consumers are looking beyond traditional care settings. Speed and convenience are key driver of consumer decision to seek care at alternative sites such as urgent care and retail clinics. 44% and 39% visited in the last year respectively. And one third of respondents would be likely to switch providers for a virtual visit option. So my take on this, keep in mind this is an industry sponsored survey from a company that does online patient engagement. So I'm not surprised to see things like a rise in self-service scheduling being reported by them, but it feels right to me. The data is interesting, and as CMIOs, we need to keep up with the consumer choices so that we can help guide our health IT infrastructure to meet those needs. I did think it was interesting that the hospital and health system reputation is really less important than a couple of other factors. And I think that will disappoint our chief marketing officers, but I, be that as it may, I, our name brand isn't quite as important as we may think it is now. It may be for a few very select healthcare systems, but in general, it's not the thing that seems to drive patients where they're going to go get care. And that's somewhat of a blow to the ego of some health systems I know. Sorry. All right, next article. This one came out of Jamia, the Journal of Informatics in Health and Biomedicine. And the importance of clinical decision support system response time monitoring, a case report. And this was in the November issue. David Rubens, I think, is the lead author on this. And so I'm going to read you a bunch from this because I really loved this, this uh, case report. So here's what they say. There's growing evidence supporting monitoring programs for clinical decision support systems with the strongest evidence focusing on recognition of anomalies in firing rates and user responses to CDS. This type of monitoring is felt to be essential for the success of CDS systems by identifying errors both before and after releasing to end users. With increasing usage of web services in CDS systems, there's a need to monitor the interaction between the local EHR and the cloud-based decision support it is calling. Multiple systems interacting increases the chance of failure because small probabilities of malfunction or are, combi are combinatorially, that's a word, all right, increased with each additional system. Malfunction in these interactions can lead to inaccurate information transmittal, delays in data processing, and increased decision support generation time. And we present a case of malfunctioning of the local EHR cloud-based decision support interaction that led to significant increase in decision support generation time, resulting in considerable system slowness. So here's a piece out of the case report. So this is their organization. It's Partners Healthcare in Boston. Was uh, implementing a BPA, a best practice advisory in their EHR, which is EPIC, and it calls a web service provided by the National Decision Support Company, NDSC, and that product is called Care Select. And you probably heard in one of my earlier podcasts, we talked about the PAMA law and what we're doing about it. This is, their, this is what they were doing for the PAMA uh, law to help them meet the um, the appropriate use criteria. So, continuing here, when a provider places an order for qualifying imaging procedures, Epic creates an aggregate of the relevant information using the HL7 CCDA standard and it's sent to NDSC. So NDSC receives and processes this information and returns to Epic an appropriateness grade for the advanced imaging order, which is then displayed to the provider. 
When initially implemented at our institution, the alert was set to display to ordering providers only in the outpatient settings and to fire silently, in other words, not be displayed to the end user in the inpatient setting. On October 20th, 2018, we upgraded our EHR from EPIC version 2015 to 2018. The following day, we began receiving reports from inpatient providers experiencing significant delays when ordering imaging studies. Delays of more than 60 seconds from clicking sign to order filing were observed. The delay was confirmed using EPIC's Pulse tool that monitors average time to complete a variety of workflow steps and the number of exceptions time delays greater than a set threshold on a real-time basis. Given the significant implications of ordering delay on patient care and provider usability, once the problem was confirmed, we deactivated the BPA in the inpatient setting. Of note, after fully investigating this issue, we found that there had been significant delays in the months preceding the upgrade as well that had not been reported by end users. Had we been prospectively monitoring response times, we would have likely identified this performance issue even without end-user input. Retroactively, we were not able to determine why these pre-upgrade delays occurred. Conclusion, as the case illustrates, there is a need for more robust monitoring of clinical decision support systems as they become more complex and dependent on external web-based resources. CDS monitoring programs focused on the stability and integrity of CDS need to consider overall system performance as much as firing rates. Based on our experience with this event, we are working to develop automated anomaly detectors that focus on the system response time and programmatic exceptions that are recorded by EPIC. So why do I think this is important, this story? Well, are you monitoring your system performance in any systematic way after you put in place clinical decision support tools? Because most of us are lucky if we have the resources to evaluate the effectiveness of CDS interventions and we have little to no feedback on system speed. It's worth tracking this, it sounds like. There was a presenter at uh, the EPIC UGM conference this summer that deactivated a number of alerts that were only running in the background and improved system responsiveness noticeably. Physicians could feel the difference. So like most CMIOs, I, I'm focusing on the invasive alerts. I rarely look at the ones that are doing things in the background. And I do not get system response time data, and I rely on the tried and true method of waiting until a provider calls me and says the system sucks, now it's slow, go fix it. So consider asking your system admins for response time data and comparing it as you make changes, and definitely consider reviewing all of those alerts that are firing the background from some project that was done five years ago that nobody needs anymore. It may serve your end users well to spend some time looking at those things and system performance. thought that was really interesting out of Jamia. I got another, another uh, one or two out of Jamia, see what we have time for here. So the next one, again, from the same issue, the November issue. This one was the importance of health insurance claims data in creating learning health systems, evaluating care for high need, high cost patients using the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network. So I'll kind of paraphrase here a little bit. They go off to say about how with these high need, high cost patients, we have to understand what is driving that and we have to get data to do that. And we have to intervene with effective tools and effective interventions that are going to change the trajectory for those patients. And so many health systems, they say, have 
these programs in place with case management but really have no idea if they're effective or not. And given the cost of case management programs, we really need to know if we're spending our money wisely. So they go on to say there are significant practical challenges to routine evaluation of effectiveness by health systems, including a lack of evaluation capacity and barriers related to data and IT infrastructure. So their objectives here in this study was to examine the importance of access to complete claims data in rapidly evaluating the care for high-need, high-cost patients. We sought to determine whether the evaluation of case management programs required the use of claims data to match cases to comparison patients or whether EHR-based matching data was sufficient. So they're comparing whether you get just claims data and EHR data versus just the EHR data and looking at the effectiveness of these programs. And so the results, the outpatient case management programs at each of the three sites that they looked at had substantial similarities. Each program was designed to address high cost utilization, including emergency department and inpatient stays. All programs used risk scores for case finding in addition to other case finding methods and the case managers at each site included nurses and social workers. Sounds very standard for what most of our programs look like. All three sites had similar intervention intensity, averaging two contacts per month per patient. All three programs used primarily telephonic and in some person and some in-person contacts with the patient and involved collaboration with the patient's primary care physician. So let's get to the the actual discussion piece here. Using an EHR-based matching survey, just the EHR data, they found that en uh, enrollment into the outpatient case management programs at two of the three participating health systems was associated with fewer hospital admissions and emergency department visits over the subsequent 12 months. In contrast, when you add in the claims data, they found that none of the systems were able to change event days over time. So as expected, EHR data was incomplete with respect to hospital admissions and emergency visits, and the completeness of data varied across the three sites. I think this is an excellent article for CMIOs to consider. Our case management programs may not know what they don't know here. They, they may need to pivot. They may need to change their program, and they probably don't have the data to guide them on in this area. So based on this study, it sounds like that data needs to include claims data, which we don't always get. So are you measuring the effectiveness of your case management interventions? Most places do not. We generally just accept that with blind faith, we throw resources at the problem. It has to improve. High-risk high patients are tough, and this may not be where we should put in all of our efforts. Our goal should be to identify the higher risk patients that are going to benefit from the intervention and not just high risk. The key factor there was will benefit. So we have to help out our case management colleagues do the comparison on outcomes for patients with and without the intervention and it appears to be important to utilize claims data in that comparison. Love that uh, article out of Jamia. This article, it, it was, it's almost more of a, an editorial here. It's, again, out of Jamie, it's putting the why in EHR, capturing the coding clinical, capturing encoding clinical cognition, again, out of the November issue here. And the, the article is about how the EHR just isn't delivering what we needed to deliver. 
And they go on and describe a hypothetical interaction between a physician and an EHR using like a smart speaker, uh, a Google device, and Alexa. So just follow through some of this. I'll read you a few lines from it, and I think you'll get the gist. So this is the kind of where we are today scenario, and then I'll read you some from the more advanced what we really want scenario. So, Alexa, Mrs. Jones has had shortness of breath for a month, developed palpitations today, and now has an irregular heartbeat with a rate of about 135. I think her symptoms and physical exam findings are due to an arrhythmia. Has she ever had an arrhythmia before? And then Alexa says, she doesn't have arrhythmia on her problem list, Dave. This word appears 22 times in her health record and 350 times in reports from the HIE. Would you like me to read them? Dave says, yes. Okay, admission note from 1995 states patient has no family history of arrhythmia. Admission note from 1996 states patient has no family history of arrhythmia. Admission note from 1997 says, Alexa, stop. Order an electrocardiogram. Okay, I've ordered an electrocardiogram. A little time later, Alexa, what did the electrocardiogram show? The electrocardiogram performed one hour ago shows atrial fibrillation with a ventricular response rate of 183. So maybe she has hyperthyroidism. Alexa, order thyroid function tests. Uh, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Mrs. Jones had this test performed less than six months ago and hospital policy, Alexa, override. Okay, thyroid function test ordered. I think you get the point there. The, now let me read you the, the second hypothetical version here, which is just so much more interesting in terms of what they're asking the computer to do. Again, the beginning is the same. Mrs. Jo the doctor speaking to Alexa. Mrs. Jones has that shortness of breath, palpitations, a regular heart rate, and asks, has she ever had arrhythmia before? Alexa responds, no arrhythmia is listed in any of the problem lists from her past 25 years of health records. Reports from the HIE includes atrial fibrillation on a problem list from five years ago, but no additional information is available. Okay, Alexa, please order the electrocardiogram, and Alexa does that. Two hours later, Alexa, what did the electrocardiogram show? And Alexa says it's uh, atrial fibrillation. Hmm, so maybe she has hyperthyroidism. Alexa, order thyroid function tests. Okay, thyroid function tests have been ordered. In addition to hyperthyroidism as a possible cause of atrial fibrillation, you may wish to consider heart valve disease and pulmonary embolism. Would you like me to order an echocardiogram and a D-dimer test? And the doctor answers yes. So, and it goes on, but I think you get the point. The, the difference there is huge in which you, you notice in the second scenario, it didn't question the need for thyroid testing because it knew there's a new clinical situation going on here. Something's different and it's okay to reorder thyroid tests in that situation. And notice that the doctor did not have a very broad differential diagnosis and so added some things into that differential and suggested the appropriate tests to help rule it in or out. And that's when the EHR truly becomes a partner and not just a data collection tool. Unfortunately, the article did go on to say that we are nowhere near getting this kind of functionality out of our EHR. It is, I think, what all of us want. I love the article, love to see what is in the art of possible, just in what people are thinking about and a little bit disappointing to hear that. I'd be surprised if in my clinical lifetime that this is the type of interaction we have with our EHRs. If those of you who are 
young and fresh out here, then I, I hope you do get to see it. It really is something that we need. But it's also been the holy grail of uh, EHR development for decades. All right, last story here. Early AI adopters beginning to see success predicting readmissions and ED visits. This is out of Fierce Healthcare, Heather Landy, November 5th. And so Class and Chime polled early adopter healthcare organizations using AI software, specifically machine learning and natural language processing, to evaluate the gains they achieved in clinical, financial, and operational areas. The research is based on interviews with IT leaders, including CIOs, CMIOs, and data scientists at 57 healthcare organizations using purpose-built AI vendors and analytics platforms with AI infrastructure, EHR vendors, and health IT app vendors were not included in this class survey. So uh, population health and clinical decision support are the two most common use cases where AI software is being applied. Healthcare providers profiled in the report cited early success with clinical outcomes such as reducing readmissions and detecting sepsis. So here's in one use case, this one was odd. A healthcare provider CIO said their organization is using predictive modeling for things like the likelihood of a frivolous lawsuit. Someone can file a lawsuit without legal backing. People can say they fell when they really didn't or that they were mistreated when they really weren't. Those lawsuits are the kinds of things that we would want to predict before they happen, the CIO said in the report. That's just odd. I, 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 how are you going to approach someone and say, ah, I think you're a scammer. I don't understand that predictive tool, but okay. So which vendor ranks best? Because that's really what this article is about. So in a separate version of the report, Class rated the customer satisfaction for six leading AI healthcare vendors, Javion, DataRobot, Kensai, and Clinithink, and then IBM Health Watson and Health Catalyst. The evaluation specifically looked at solutions that provided machine learning and natural language processing capabilities. Researchers noted that because healthcare AI is such a new market, only one of those six companies, which is Javion, had enough evaluations of at least 15 to be considered fully rated. The others are based on limited data set of six to 15 evaluations. So DataRobot, which offers automated machine learning platform for readmissions prediction and prevention, received a high customer satisfaction score of 94. Kensai also got a high satisfaction score of 92.8, and that was for its length of stay prediction tool. IBM Watson has turned the corner in performance, but still has room to improve in providing value, healthcare customers said. A, cost, a couple of customers questioned whether the product, while helpful, is worth the price tag long term. Two of the seven interviewed IBM customers report nickel and diming, the highest percentage measured among the vendors, Class said. Javion has the largest client base in the healthcare AI market, according to Class. The vendor's AI software targets emergency department and readmission prediction. Clients report mediocre satisfaction with the software and implementation challenges, according to the report, and the company received a customer satisfaction score of 84.4. Health Catalyst customers gave the company a performance score of 85.5, citing long implementation times. The company has the strongest healthcare expertise, according to Class, but customers report the outcomes are either early or will take a while to be realized. So 
as CMIOs, I think it's interesting to just understand the market a little bit. Many of you are out there shopping for predictive tools and trying to understand and figure out which vendors to go with. And so you might want to pick up that class report just to understand what your colleagues who have been interacting with these companies, what they're saying. I, it's kind of like the consumer reports for, for health IT. Uh, I do think it's fairly popular to bash IBM Watson just because, I guess, of the, um, the hype that was surrounding it and the marketing and then the lack of great things that came from it, particularly with the MD Anderson uh, program that, I guess, kind of didn't move forward very or didn't complete. Nevertheless, I wouldn't count IBM out. They are a very bright company with some really strong data scientists and uh, I would not write them off. They certainly are well established and you know they're going to be around a long, long time. Uh, Health Catalyst, I'm surprised that they their performance score was, was only 85.5. They have a tremendous reputation um, and I agree with class. They, their healthcare expertise is definitely uh, well known. And the others may also be phenomenal. I just don't have the same level of experience or interaction with them. So that's, uh, that's the news for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.